today with stuff, with junk that's in our past, junk that's in our hearts, junk that weighs us down, that makes it hard for us to hear you, hard to hear your voice. And Lord, we ask that you would come in right now and with a freshness that comes from your spirit, with power that comes from your spirit, that you would break every chain in the name of Jesus. God, that you would break chains in our marriages, that you would break chains in our finances, that you would break chains in our relationships. God, that you'd break chains that weigh us down from stuff that happened lots and lots of years ago. God, that the burdens that we carry would be loosened and unleashed and set at your feet. God, send your presence, send your spirit. We know that you've promised that you'd be here. We just ask that you would come and clean us, that you'd remove the burdens, you'd remove the chains, that we would hear from you clearly this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Good morning. It is good to be here. Good to see you all. God's doing some good stuff. We're going to have uh, the guys come down and pass the welcome books. If you're here for the first time, you'll see that everybody kind of fills out the welcome books as they go by. That's so that we can stay in touch with you and so that we can stay in touch with everybody as well. Uh, if you can do that, that'd be great. And then in just a little bit, the offering buckets are going to go by and uh, you'll have a chance to give back to God out of uh, the goodness that he has blessed you, and that's a cool thing. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. We are in week four of a series from the book of Acts called Bold, the birth of the church, which is really cool. We've been looking at Acts um, with this context of what it means to be bold followers of Jesus and looking particularly at the boldness of the church in the first century. I talked first week about Jesus' charge to the disciples. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And that they would have that, uh, that they would be those witnesses with boldness that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. That wouldn't be on their own, but the Holy Spirit would come in and, and do that. Uh, we talked next week about the boldness of the disciples to replace Judas with Matthias and how they went through that process. Last week we talked about the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, and Peter's message that was so strong, so in your face, where he said to all these people who had come from all over the world to Jerusalem to share in the Passover and and on the Feast of Pentecost, and said, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one who came to save you. And you killed him. And people said, what... What do we do if we've killed the one that God sent to save us? And Peter said, repent, change your heart, change the path that you're on. Let God get in and remake you from the inside. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's promised that's to you, to your children, to those who are far off, to the, those people that live in Lansing, Michigan, and DeWitt and St. John's and Langsburg, Grand Ledge. In 2015, that promise is to you. 
that God would come in and reshape your life in a cool way. And it says that on that day, 3,000 people were baptized. So the church went from this small, tiny group of 12, from 120, to all of a sudden there's thousands of people. And you'll see um, in the passage that we read today that it just continues to expand. Incredible stuff. And that leads us to... Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going to start in just a second. Let me tell a quick story first. In 1989, I made my first trip to Honduras. I was 30 years old. And uh, and I never expected in my wildest dreams that I would ever leave the United States. It was kind of like, oh, man, someday maybe I'll make it to Canada or Mexico. Um, not really, because I had been those places before. But I thought, you know, Central America, third world country, could never picture myself there. And, and uh, the, first, the first Sunday that we were there, I can still see in my mind, I was in this small cement block building that was painted as many buildings in Central America are kind of that aqua green color. You know, if you've been there, you've seen it before. This vibrant thing, we're, we're in this room that's painted that color with Hondurans that had, had walked up the mountains. We're in a church in the mountains and they had walked 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and a half to come to church. And I remember sitting there thinking, as everything's going on in Spanish around me, worships in Spanish, messages in Spanish, um, communions in Spanish, thinking, what is it that the church is supposed to look like? I had gone down there. Uh, the church that I was serving with at that point was just in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And, and at that point in time, everybody wore a suit and tie to church on Sunday morning. The ladies all wore dresses. Not very many hats, but a few. What is it that the church is supposed to look like? Is it supposed to look like where I've come from? Or is it supposed to look like this, this small group of people that don't have much of anything? Country preacher, everything's very simple. Is it supposed to look like a mega church, you know, like the churches of 5,000, 10,000, 20,000? Or is it supposed to look like the church where I grew up, a church of maybe 120 or 150, where everybody knew everybody else and for the most part was related to everybody else? You know, that, that kind of church. What's What was the church supposed to look like? And I think the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning helps define for us the DNA of the church because the church is supposed to look different at every time in every culture as God's truth, God's principles permeate that culture. The church here in DeWitt shouldn't look like a church in Southern California because it's two completely different cultures. Church in DeWitt shouldn't look like a church in Central America or in Scandinavia or in Asia. Because the gospel permeates the culture in different kinds of ways. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and let's look at what it says there. Luke writes, And they devoted themselves, the 3,000 who had just been baptized, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
We're going to, the message this morning is really going to break down into two big chunks. The, the first chunk is this. The, the bold presence of the church in the first century, in the New Testament, after the day of Pentecost, the bold presence of the church was characterized by four things that are found in Acts 2.42. Okay, they define what the church looked like. And those things should define our church here. It should define um, it should define the church of Jesus in any culture, in any time, in any place. And then the the, um, the next section of the message is a short section, but it's going to um, it's going to look at the evidence of that as it existed in that culture. What were the signs that the church was doing and being what um, God had called the church to do and be so. Um, the, what were, what were the things that defined the DNA of the church? That's the question. Acts 2.42 begins to spell that out for us. The first is this, that they were devoted to the apostles teaching. They were devoted to the apostles teaching. Well, that makes great sense until you think, wait a second, what was the apostles teaching, right? Where did they get that? Jesus had gone into heaven. What was it that they were going to teach? Well, they were going to teach what they had seen and heard from Jesus, right? They had seen uh, Jesus do ministry for three years. They had listened to him teach, and they began to teach and explain who Jesus was from the context of Scripture. The Apostles' Doctrine wasn't some new teaching. It wasn't some new doctrine. It was the story of God from the beginning of time. It was the story of the history and the law and the prophets from the Old Testament. It was the story of sin, separation, and salvation. It was the story of love and judgment and grace through Jesus. It wasn't the kind of thing that we think in terms of now where, where we think about the church comes together and the, you know, the, the pastor gets up to preach. He does the sermon, does the 30 minute thing, and then everybody's up and gone and it's kind of a checkoff list. The Apostles Doctrine was a process, um, the church being devoted to that, it was a process of study and learning that happened on a daily basis. Don't miss the fact that the Jews were incredibly literate biblically, all right? The, the Jewish men, by the time that they were 12, they would have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in their entirety, the Torah, they memorized. They were incredibly literate biblically. Every Jew would have known all 612 commands, the laws that were given from Moses to the Jews. They would have gotten that. And so the Apostles' Doctrine was, was explaining from the frame of reference that the Jews had who Jesus was and why he came. Um, if, you've, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 17 and just look at a verse because there's, there's a picture there that I want uh, to describe us. I want it to describe you as a follower of Jesus. I want it to describe me. Uh, Acts 17 verse 11 says this, Now these Jews, the Jews in the city of Berea, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I want to say to you today, don't take anything I say when I'm speaking as gospel truth. Don't take anything for granted from me. But be like the Bereans and check what I communicate against the rest of scripture. 
When Chris is up here speaking, when anybody else is up front, when you listen to a, a preacher on the radio or a podcast or on TV, study the scriptures because none of us are in that role. The scripture is our authority. The scripture defines what it means to follow Jesus, who he is. The scripture describes and defines the character and nature of God. Do you get that? The apostles' doctrine is so important that it's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's, it's, um, it's an everyday part of life as we study uh, to have that make sense. There was a, a phrase that was used by the, uh, about the church in America in the 1800s, about many of the churches, that the people were described as a people of the book. What a great descriptor. I wish that that would be our Um, uh, something that would describe us at North Point, that we would be a people of the book, that we would be so immersed in Scripture that it just flows out of of what we are. If you've been around the church at all, um, you've heard this phrase um, any place in the country where people say, you know, I don't know if I'm going to keep going to that church. I'm just not, I don't feel like I'm being fed. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever said that? Don't raise your hands. Um, Okay. Think, think for a second with me, outside the church context, who gets fed? Babies get fed, right? When you bring a baby home from the hospital, it's at that point that the baby gets fed, gets the bottle, it nurses from its mom. As the baby gets a little bit older, you put them in the high chair, and they, even as an infant, begin to feed themselves, right? You put the Cheerios out. And they're grabbing them, shoving them in their mouth. You got the applesauce and the baby food and it's a mess. You know, you do their first birthday party and they've got their hands and the cake and the icing and their hair. All that. They begin to feed themselves. By the time a child's two, three, four years old, they're using silverware to feed themselves, right? By the time that um, they're a teenager, they're absolutely feeding themselves. And the role of the parents is not to feed them at all, but to make sure that they eat a balanced, healthy diet. Um, I don't know what it was like for you growing up, but for me, there were two rules that defined dinner time at my house relative to food. One was you had to take some of everything. And two, you had to clean your plate. Um, those rules are not real popular in our current culture, but that was the way I grew up. You had to take some of everything because mom made it. And, um, and then you had to clean your plate. Well, mom sometimes made some things that I, as a teenager, was not real kicked about. Um, creamed peas, beets, you know, you, uh, beets. Um, and, and I don't know why she did this, cottage cheese. We would have cottage cheese as a dish. Um, here's what I remember. Here's what I remember about dinner time as a teenager. Um, you know, we would have the cream corn or the beets thing, and I would put my spoon in and take out like five or six peas and put them on the plate. I'd cut, you know, half a beet and mix it, mix, put it all over my plate because it was red and so it would look bigger. And my mom, I can remember my mom looking at me and, looking at me and saying, do you want to dish that out or do you want me to dish that out for you? And, and those words were kind of the kiss of death because if mom dished it out, we had to clean our plates, Right. And so I was going to have to eat like half the bowl of creamed peas. And so I know, mom, I'll take care of it. And so do the whole spoon, go through that deal. Here, here's the thing. As a teenager, as an adult, we feed ourselves. 
even as a young follower in Jesus, we need to develop the ability to feed ourselves. The job of the church is to make sure that we get a balanced diet. It's to make sure that, that, that the teaching is solid and that it's coming from lots of different directions. But we have a responsibility to feed ourselves. There is so much opportunity for us in the world that we live in um, to listen to preachers on TV, to study through the Internet, to listen to podcasts, to listen to the radio, to, to, to be able to grab God's word and incorporate it into our lives. Don't count on the church being the only place that you get it. If all you're getting from God is happening on Sunday morning, you're, you're going to grow um, to a place that you are feeble and weak and die because you can't survive spiritually on that. Um, so you, the question may be, okay, I get that, Rick. I need to feed myself. How do I do that? Where do I start? Where do I find the food? Where's the pantry, right? Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, come talk to me out at the Welcome Center. There's an area out there. We've got Bibles. We would love to give them to you. And let me tell you where to start if you've never read Scripture before. Um, start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books in the New Testament. And they will tell you the story of Jesus. They're the, they're the biographies of Jesus, his life story. So you want to read from the Gospels and you want to read from what are called the letters or the epistles. They start with the book of Romans and they go through the book of Jude. And those books, the, that teaching is from the apostles about what it looks like to live and love and follow Jesus on a daily basis. That is the apostles doctrine fleshed out for us. So if you want to be devoted to the apostles doctrine, like the, like the people in the first century church, that's the place to start. Um, immersing yourself in scripture, beginning to incorporate it and put it into your life. Um, the second thing that Luke mentions is that they were devoted to fellowship. Um, that, there was this sense of community in the first century church that's so critical. It's so important um, that, that people's lives are tied into each other. Sometimes we think that if we just come to church, if we have some Christian friends, everything's going to be okay. But we've got to be involved in each other's lives. We've got to, we've got to not just share experience, not just share time, but we've, we've really got to share life. Sometimes, uh, well, at North Point, we talk about that in the context of accountability groups or life groups, um, uh, accountability partners, that kind of thing. And, and that's great because life change, life transformation happens in the context of relationship. We've got to be involved in those relationships. But if what happens in your life group is that people simply come together and study scripture or they come together and simply pray, and they don't really jump into the middle of each other's lives. Um, growth isn't really going to happen at the level it needs to. Because growth happens when we go through crisis and struggle and pain together. When I think about the life groups that I've been a part of, the, the greatest group growth has come in times where in the group, either Deb and I were going through just really difficult times and shared and people came and ministered to us or people in the group were going through tough, difficult, horrible times and we were able to share with them. That's, that's hard, isn't it? It's scary. It's scary to be vulnerable and to let people into your lives. Sometimes I think it's even scarier to be involved in somebody else's life when they're going through a mess and to try and help help them understand God's 
um, God's love, God's plan in the middle of crisis. Um, Growth comes when we share strife and struggle. 35 years ago, um, if you were alive, you remember uh, the Olympics, the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. Um, it, was, it was a crazy time. The Cold War was in full swing. The, the Soviet Union had just months before the Olympics um, had invaded Afghanistan. And so there was talk with President Carter about whether um, they would boycott the Olympics, the, the next Olympics that would, that would take place in the Soviet Union. Um, all kinds of mess going on. And there was this coach for the United States hockey team named Herb Brooks. Um, Herb Brooks' job, his goal was to have a group of college hockey players defeat the Soviet Union hockey team. The Soviet Union was a professional hockey team that lived together, that trained together, that um, for 10 years most of them had played together. They hadn't lost a hockey match, uh, a hockey game um, in 20 years before the 1980 Olympics. Incredible, incredible, incredible deal. Herb Brooks understood that in order for the United States to win that hockey game, that they would ultimately play with the Soviets, he didn't need the best players that were available in college. He needed a team. He needed a group of guys that, was, that were so connected in community and fellowship that they knew everything about each other, that they could count on each other. And so Herb Brooks went through this process of really kind of breaking them down. He started as they began to practice and asked them to say their name and who they played for. And each player would get up and say, you know, uh, my name's uh, uh, their name and what college they went to, where they were from. And there was this sense that there was a collection of individuals. Brooks brought them together through pain and struggle to create a team. Take a look up here on screen. This cannot be a team of common men because common men go nowhere. You have to be uncommon. Again. Herb, this has gone on long enough. Everybody on that line. Somebody's going to get hurt. Everybody get on that line. Hey. Again. Most of you know the rest of that story, right? (laughs) 
the, the team goes on an incredible way to defeat the Soviets. Um, Brooks understood that community, that fellowship happens in going through struggle and pain together. If we're to be the church that's described in Acts chapter 2, it's not going to happen by simply living alongside people, seeing each other on Sunday morning and saying hi. It's going to come through the down and dirty work of investing in each other and walking with each other through times of pain and struggle. It's going to happen when we open up and allow people into our lives. That's what God calls us to do. Most of us want that kind of community. We long for that, but it's a scary, scary thing. Challenge to you today is to do that. You know, if you're in a life group, um, let me just say this. If, if you're in a life group, I would challenge you in your group to talk about what it means to really be community and to talk about what those barriers are. It may be that you're in a group and, and, and just hearing about that community, it may be what you need to do is to say, you know what, I need to take a step and invest in some people and create a new group. I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. It may be that, that you're not in a group at all and you're thinking, I don't know what to do because we don't have all the pieces in place right now at North Point to have this massive in, influx of people into groups. I, I would just encourage you to say it doesn't take a program from the church for you to gather some people around you and say, hey, can you walk alongside me? Can we try and figure this out, what it means? We've got guides that are at the back of the auditorium that, are, that work alongside with the messages to help you study, to help you study personally, to help you study as a group, to help you study maybe in your family. And, and I'd encourage you to do that. Um, the church was devoted to the apostles' doctrine. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread is an interesting phrase when you find it in Scripture. It typically describes two different things. One of the things it describes is people eating together in homes, and we'll actually see this in a later verse. The other thing that it describes is the Lord's Supper, that, that they were devoted to sharing together the Lord's Supper. Um, why was that? I think because they recognized how important it is for us to recalibrate and kind of reset our minds. Think for a second. The people that that this describes in Jerusalem, they were the same people who heard Jesus teach, right? They saw him. They were the people who were in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. They were the people who saw Jesus' resurrected body. Why would they need to remember? They saw it firsthand. Well, it's because we all forget, right? It's easy for our memories to fade and for us to miss the significance. As you read through the, through the book of Acts, you'll, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that you'll find that there was a pattern in the New Testament, in the, in the book of Acts, that they shared the Lord's Supper probably on a weekly basis. Um, uh, Acts 20 says they were gathered together on the first day of the week for the breaking of bread. That seems to be their pattern. In 1 Corinthians 11, it, um, it says when you come together to share in the Lord's Supper, you're not doing it. You're messing it up. There was this sense that they came together each week and shared in the Lord's Supper. Why is it? Because it's so easy to, for us to forget. I need to be reminded on a daily basis 
that Jesus died for me, for my sins. I need to be reminded on a daily basis to take inventory and to confess my sin, to let go of the stuff that gets in the way of my relationship with God. I need to be reminded on a daily basis to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus until he comes. Communion helps us do that. Um, About 30 years ago, I heard a speaker, a guy named Tony Campolo, who's a Christian psychologist, college professor, and preacher. I heard him speak, and he said, if you want to change the divorce rate in America, I'll tell you exactly how to do it. And it won't take a lot of money, and it won't won't take a lot of big stuff. Here is how you change the divorce rate in America. You know, I was young, and I think Deb and I were just married. I'm thinking, okay, what is this? This has got to be great. This is a gem. He said, you want to reduce the divorce rate? Have every married couple every week attend a wedding. And I thought, that's weird. But if you think about it, If you think about it, it's true, because what happens when you go to a wedding, right? You're getting all dressed up, you go to the wedding, you go through the same stuff that happens sometimes when you come to church. Husband and wife are fighting with each other, we're going to be on time, we're going to be late, we've got to get there, got to do all that stuff. You get into the wedding, and there's this tension between husband and wife, right? They sit down, they're not talking to each other, there's space in between them. And the music starts, and what happens? The guys walk in from the front right and take their place, and the husband thinks... I remember when that was me. And the bride starts to walk down the aisle and everybody stands up and the husband thinks, I remember when this woman beside me was that woman. And the bride thinks, man, I remember coming through those doors, seeing my fiance, seeing my husband to be for the first time. And all of a sudden that tension, that wall that's there begins to thaw. Right. You go through the wedding ceremony. It comes to the time where. Where the couple says, I, Rick, take you, Deb. To be my wife. To have and to hold from this day forward. In richer and poorer. In sickness and in health. For better, for worse. To love, honor and cherish. Till death do us part. And when we say those vows, it takes us to that time that we said them for the first time. And, and you know what happens? In weddings, it happens all the time. When you get to the vows, husband and wife's hands touch. And there's warmth as they remember stating those vows for the first time. It's happening now in some of you. It takes you there, right? We need to remember. It's so easy for us to forget. And so their commitment, their devotion to share in the Lord's Supper is a critical piece because it's so easy for us to forget that Jesus died for us. When we take the cracker and it reminds us that Jesus' body was broken, that it was beaten, that it was whipped, that he had the crown of thorns, on his head embedded in his skin, stuck with a spear in his side, his feet and his hands were nailed to the cross. The bread, when we crunch it in our teeth, it reminds us that Jesus' body was destroyed for us on our behalf. When we take the cup of juice, it reminds us 
that Jesus gave his blood freely. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it freely for us. We need to remember. We're going to do that at the end of the service today. The last thing that was a critical part of the church, Acts 2.42, says that they were devoted to prayer. What, what's that mean? I had a, a friend a few weeks ago um, say, uh, shot me a note and said, what's it mean to pray without ceasing? What's that look like? How do we do that? Simplest terms, let me, let me say this. It's, I think it's to walk every minute of the day recognizing that Jesus is right beside you and to talk to him, to be conscious of his presence and to talk to him about what's going on in our lives so that, we're, that we are praying without ceasing, that, that um, we're depending upon God to provide all of our needs all the time and not counting on us to do that. When we're devoted to prayer, it means that we pray when we're by ourselves, that we have kind of that prayer closet, quiet time kind of prayer time, that that's a part of what we do, that we pray in groups, that we pray corporately, that we pray for all kinds of things. We, uh, we pray when we drive. That, for me, that's a big deal, and it helps the other drivers too. Um, <laughs> we pray... We pray before we go into an important meeting at work, right? When we're in a boring meeting, we pray. Uh, you know, one of, one of those kind of things. We pray for our kids. We pray for our boss. We pray for our employees. We pray, pray for our friends. We pray for the president. We pray for the Supreme Court. We pray for Congress. We pray for the police. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for every aspect of our lives. Just a, just a word of caution. It's, it's really easy for us to have prayer be something we kind of check off, right? You know, we pray at meal and we kind of pray the same meal, all, pray the same prayer all the time. Sometimes when we pray, even individually, we have this list of people who need healing, but we pray for people with cancer. We pray for people that have a broken leg. We pray for people whose um, marriages are in, 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 uh, in trouble. We have all this stuff that we just kind of dump at God's feet. And I would just say to you, you know, that's not a very healthy picture of a relationship with Jesus, right? To just simply say, God, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Prayer is a two-way street. We need to be quiet and we need to listen and we need to just tell God what's going on in our lives. I think sometimes that's more important than the list of things that are on a prayer list. It's just to walk with him, recognize that he's with us all the time. The church following the day of Pentecost began to pray for boldness in Acts 4. In two weeks we're going to talk about that because that's an incredible thought to think that they prayed for boldness and we see what happens there. Um, the, the bold presence of the church was characterized by a commitment to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayer. It was characterized by those things, but it was in evidence, the bold presence of the church was evidenced by a lot of things that happened beginning in verse 43. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who are being saved. I want to share just seven things out of there really, really quickly uh, to, to help paint a picture of what the perception was of the church after the day of Pentecost. The first thing is that there were awe signs and wonders that happened within the church. The awe wasn't necessarily the people from the outside. It was the people from the inside. It was that they recognized that God was doing incredible things in changing people's lives. God was working and they were filled with awe. That was one of the signs of the life of the church. Second thing is, was that they took care of each other. It says that they sold what they had so that no one would be in need. Um, this morning, we're, we're sharing in a benevolence offering. We already took up our offering, but we do a separate offering every few months to just give people an opportunity to give to help meet the needs of people here in the church and in the community. We couldn't do it without that. And um, we're not going to pass the buckets this morning, but as you leave, there are two containers that will be out at the doors. And, um, and if God leads you, if you have the ability, if you have the sense of calling from him, I'd encourage you to give to that special benevolence offering. It's so that we can meet the needs of, of people who are here close to us, just what they were talking about in Acts 2. Um, they were eating and living together. There was this sense of community. They uh, attended the temple together daily. They recognized the importance of that corporate experience. And they daily broke bread together in each other's homes. Um, Why why was that a big deal? I I think for all of us, uh, you know, something incredible happens when we eat with people. When you gather around a table, all of a sudden everything changes. Um, Many of you know, back in October, November, we had a whole bunch of folks at our house for dessert. We want to do that again in the spring because lots of people didn't get to come. It was a really cool thing. But if you were part of the people that came to our house for dessert, almost every time this is how it happened. Uh, You know, people would come, knock at the door. What's it going to be like going in the pastor's house? You know, I'd come out, shake their hands. They would walk into the living room and typically everybody would just kind of stand and say, oh, hi. Uh, uh, Oh, nice to meet you. What, what did you say your name was again? Just this incredible sense of awkwardness. If you came to my house, you remember it. If you didn't come to my house, you know what I'm talking about, right? This incredible sense of awkwardness. And I would say, hey, we're so glad you're here. Let's go eat some dessert. Deb made a whole bunch of dessert. It's right over here in the kitchen. Grab some dessert, sit down at the table, and just enjoy the dessert. And you know what would happen as soon as people got food and food got in their mouth? All of a sudden, the conversation was easy. This person said, oh, yeah, I work close to where you work. Oh, you know them? That's my cousin. We're related to each other. Uh, all of a sudden, conversation just happens very normally because people share meals together. I don't know why it is, except sometimes I think that eating is not one of the most glorified things, but it's something that we all do. You know, if I eat ribs, I end up with barbecue sauce and my beard and it's a mess. And, uh, you know, once once when you're doing that, barriers come down in an incredible way. I would challenge you this morning in our call to be the church that you would make a commitment today to start to have meals with people, because that's not something that we do in our culture very often. We only do that with the people that we're closest to. I would encourage you to make some time this week, each month, whatever, to invite some people into your house to share a meal, to take that step. That's a scary step, but it's a really, really cool thing. And maybe that you're not ready for that step. Invite somebody out to eat with you, because if you go out to eat, 
That's safe, right? Because you have a start time and you finish as soon as dessert's done. If it's going bad, you can just book out of there, right? They're not going to come and just land and stay at your house for three or four or five hours kind of thing. The church was characterized by people sharing meals together. That's something that we can do. That's something that you can do. I'd encourage you to, to do that. Um, it says that the church was characterized or the, the evidence of their of their bold presence was that they had glad and generous hearts. Why was that? Because Jesus was inside them. I, I can't tell you how many times I've read the end of Acts 2 and that never jumped out to me that the church was characterized by glad and generous hearts. What a cool thing. God was praised. They had favor with all the people. One of the things that grieves me about living in the time that I do, that we do, is that the church has such a bad reputation in our culture. The people look at the church in such a negative sense. That's not how God designed it. That was not God's intent. First century, the church was being the church. They weren't trying to impress anybody. They were just being the church. And they had favor with all the people. And the last verse, verse 47 says, God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Um, sometimes we think, oh, it's a great thing if the church just continues to grow. If God adds to our number, you know, the number gets bigger and bigger. That's not what happened in Acts chapter two. God added to their number daily those who were being saved. God is about the business of life transformation, not simply big crowds. Don't miss that. God wants to change us from the inside out. Um, for the last 24, 36 hours, I've, I've been thinking, God, what is it that you want us to do as a result of today's message? What's, what's the takeaway? What's the action step? I hope that you've written some things down. I, I, I hope it's this. I hope it's that individually and collectively, we would be a people of the book, that we would be committed to the apostles' doctrine, that we would be a people, a church that's committed to relationships, that we don't just say that in a big picture vision kind of way, that that, that begins to permeate everything that we do, that we invest in people around us formally, Informally is probably more important than the formal that we would be a people of prayer. That uh, that we would be a people with bold relationships. Um, That can only happen. It can only happen because of Jesus. We're going to we're going to finish this morning with an opportunity for us to share in the Lord's Supper. So band, you guys can go ahead and come up. Um, I feel like I've already talked about why that's important and what's involved in that. Let me let me just say a couple of things. Um, in just a couple of minutes, the guys are going to come forward. We're going to pass out the, the tools that help us remember what Jesus went through for us. Take as much time as you need to take inventory, to confess your sins to God, to recognize the, the, the hugeness of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, communion doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and so I'd, I'd encourage you to uh, you know, feel free to just go ahead and pass the tray on to the next person and just kind of enjoy the silence and think about the stuff that I've been talking about and maybe how it might impact you. Um, But we're going to have a chance in just the quietness to commune with Jesus.
to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then, uh, then we'll have a chance to sing and respond together. Go ahead and come on down. Let's share in a time of communion.